At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. We're back. We are. We, uh, we finished a couple episodes and we decided to come back and do yes, it again. It was fun. It was fun. And I hope everybody's enjoying what we're talking about and will stick with us a little bit longer as we figure out our groove here. Yes. But we're having a lot of fun with it. Our voices aren't coming across as too monotone or boring or. Yeah. I think yours sounds great. Thanks. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm using my best answering the phone voice. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a different phone voice? Uh, I think the boys would say so. Like, you sound really nice on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to how you sound every day. Well, (laughs) I think that's like a lost art. I don't know about your boys, but I I grew up answering the phone at my house. And we would always, uh, you know, I'd be like, hello, you know, bar residence, you know, my maiden name. (laughs) And, oh, who may I ask is calling? Uh, They're not here at the moment. May I take a message? (laughs) You know, they're indisposed. I mean, I had like really good phone etiquette. Maybe not etiquette or anything else, but phone etiquette, I was great at. You nailed it. And nowadays with cell phones, my kids never answer the phone. And if I call them, it's usually like, what is it's usually the first answer that I, you know, what? I'm like, is that how you answer the phone? Or literally, um, my older son had a friend call him the other night to talk logistics. You know, the only time they're actually talking right. on the phone. He was talking logistics and we were at a restaurant and he went outside nicely to take the call. But he was speaking into the space speaker like and I'm like you're in a parking lot I can see you outside the window speaking into the speaker why don't you put the phone to your ear no like he had no idea how to do it or like it's moving away (laughs) from his mouth this is a 14 year old kid I mean like the whole concept of phone etiquette or even apparently holding the phone correctly completely lost on this generation. Maybe we have a whole second podcast series (laughs) about like things we have to teach the new generations that they don't know it, how to it, handle. It, yeah. Uh, I, so, yes, when you were talking about your phone voice, I was just really internalizing that. Right. Yes. I um, I had a job in high school where I answered the phone for a bank. And so I talked on the phone all the time. And when I went to college, my roommate was scared to call and order pizza because she didn't want to talk to people on the phone. Aww. And I was like, it is my mission over this next four years to teach you how to call and order pizza. Little did I know there'd be an app for that later. Right. So we just finished off our four-day week. It's Friday. We had the Monday off. Did y'all catch up on any news, any headlines I need to know about? Because I've been out of everything. I know there is, oh, sorry. Um, The Idaho stuff, what's going on? Are there any updates on that? I mean, that whole story blows my mind. So one of the girls that was killed was in the same sorority I was in. So I've been really, I mean, following it. Not that I haven't followed it anyway, but it feels like it hits a little bit closer to home. For sure. And um, sounds like the police were really doing a great job in keeping things quiet. Tight-lipped the whole time. You know, and all these people, internet web sleuths were, you know, coming up with theories and saying, why didn't the police, you know, do X, Y, or Z? But it sounds like they were just keeping their heads down and doing a good job. And, you know, we don't always see that in true crime stories. So I'm pretty impressed. Absolutely. I know as as uh, true crime junkies, 
we want to know everything. We want to like be living in that. And I think it's also the TV and the documentary era that we live in that we expect to be carried along on the journey. Um, uh, but no, I mean, truthfully, when you're developing a case, you it should be quiet and it should be internalized. And um, and so I think it's they did a really good job. But it also kind of goes to show you there really is no perfect crime because apparently um, the man that they've arrested, who's allegedly um, the, uh, the um, I don't know, what do you, not the victim, what's the opposite? Perpetrator. Perpetrator, good word. Um, and he carried his phone with him. Like, so there's like call records of showing mm. that where he was located and that he even went back to the house a few hours later in the day. And so, and this was a PhD student in um, criminology, I believe. What? Oh, I didn't realize he was getting oh, his yeah. in criminology. Yes. You so would think the, turn off your cell phone is like 101. I I mean, even I know that one. So. I think a lot of times in these situations, there's a hubris that comes along with someone who, who even thinks they can commit a crime like that. So he's probably like, oh, you know, they'll never catch me and I'm outsmarting everyone. So it probably didn't even occur to him because he's already in that uh, oh, narcissistic mindset. Well, we're going to do something a little bit different today, Elena. You up until now, I've been yes. sort of catching you up on the story of John Bonet and talking a little bit about her house, but it's your turn today Yay. and I'm excited again about the story you're going to bring us because it's one I don't know a lot oh, about. Like, okay. For me, it's one of those cultural references that I always just nod along and act <laughs> like I know what people are talking about, and I really don't. So I'm I'm glad you're going to educate yes, me Yes, I'm excited. I'm super excited to talk about it. Um, this one's different than our previous episodes because we know when, how, why, who committed this this massacre. And this, when I think about what kind of got me on this path of just being enthralled with true crime and things like that, this is the first thing I think of. I think I was probably 10 years old, and there was a, a miniseries, Helter Skelter, I think it was called, miniseries uh, on ABC. And I was just obsessed with it. And I was probably 10, probably shouldn't have been watching it. Probably but. not. No, that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. It was the 80s. And I mean, if it was on TV in it was the on 80s, ABC, I'm sure it was yeah. fine. Yeah, but miniseries were huge. And were you, as a Kentucky girl in the 80s, were you into miniseries or what was your thing? Yeah, you know, I don't really remember watching a lot of miniseries, but we watched a lot of soap operas. Um, my mom and I love Days of Our Lives, oh. and we would record it on, you know, good old VHS and come home and watch it that night. Again, probably something I shouldn't have been watching as a 10-year-old, but... <laughs> but um, still, the same. It was on, it was on network TV, I Yeah, think. well, and it was fun for mom and I to do together. I mean, right. we did that all the way through maybe into my 30s. I love it. <laughs> talk about Days of Our Lives. I love it. And Passions. Did you ever watch Passions? After no, I remember the commercial mm. for it, but yeah. I, I mean, you weren't watching much okay. at all. Okay, it didn't just, stay on very long. No, no, it's probably a reason for that. Yeah, I was an all my children girl. Oh, I was obsessed with all my okay. children. Yeah, it was the same thing. It's something that my grandmother and I talked about. Was yeah, all my children. So was that nice tie-in. Yes. So we're going to talk about the Manson family murders today, and I wanted to kind of. S- set the scene on on the the home. Let's talk about the home since that's that's what we do. That's what so we, we do. We yeah. do we do homes. So the address was 10050 Cielo Drive and it was located in an exclusive Benedict Canyon neighborhood of Los Angeles and it was built in 1941 for a French actress Michelle Morgan, I'm guessing is how you'd say that she's Michelle French. Sounds Morgan. French. Yeah, I love Morgan. It. Mm-hmm. 
She purchased a home for $32,000 in 1941, which today translates to 648729 which still sounds like a bargain. That's Yeah, I don't think they're selling any houses for $650,000 right. in Hollywood Hills anymore. For sure. Yeah, I would. we could, we could totally buy that. We could move. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess if we wanted to live in that house. I mean, well, if they wanted to sell it for six fifty, dollars maybe we could why not? do that. Yeah, take a chance. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. California real estate is, is a whole different ballgame for sure. You know, we've had... A lot of transplants from mm-hmm. California to Texas over the last five or six years, and they're always blown away by how much house you can get right. for your money here. Right, so. right. They love it. They love it. Um, so this home was a cottage-inspired farmhouse. So it was farmhouse chic before farmhouse chic was a thing. So before, before Magnolia and Chip and Joanna. Yeah, and, yeah, and the, yes. Yeah, before that whole thing well, that, that exploded 10, 15 years ago. But that makes sense to me if she was a French actress, because I think a mm. lot about, you know, French cottages and it, it sounds like maybe a lot that of was part of the style. Right. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Not to interrupt, um, but one of the things I had read about was that her purchase of the home was actually even reported in the Los Angeles Times oh. at the time. Um, and it was considered to be a rural oasis. Um, and it, it one of the quotes I read was enchanted woodland garden, idyllic and remote at the end of a cul-de-sac. So um, surrounded by trees with stunning views of the LA basin from downtown to the ocean. Not sure if all that's true, but yeah, it was definitely considered kind of the rural area of the 1920s at the time. Um, nowadays, it's not, but right. it's still pretty um, idyllic well, out there. You said a beautiful saying that I want you to do all of our ads. No. <laughs> Start taking that radio as. That's right. I'm great at reading things and quotes um, very uh, articulate, not necessarily thinking on the top of my head. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, it, it was very gorgeous. And I've spent a bit of time in the Hollywood Hills. I've, I've go out to LA quite a bit. And it is beautiful. Um, these like very kind of, well, for a Texan, we think they're mountains. They're not. But they, you know, they're very, you know, high hills, steep driveways. You can't see anything uh, around. Uh, this is, tr- you know, for those of you who are kind of imagining L.A., this is just sort of west of Hollywood and just like kind of like a little bit northwest of Beverly Hills. Um um, pretty close to like the Getty Museum, which is like one of my favorite museums in the world. Um, so it's maybe five to seven miles away from like the heart of downtown Hollywood. Um, but yet it feels very far away. And I can imagine, especially in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, you know, it probably felt much more rural mm-hmm. um, than it is today. Um, you know, of course, with LA traffic, it's still like 30 minutes away right. from anything. Well, some further details about the home is that it was thir- three. Some further details about the home is that it was 3,200 square feet. That was the main house. And there was a 2,000 square foot guest house. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, to have that big of a guest house. Right, right. You're right. Uh, Robert Byrd was the architect, and he was known for this style. It's kind of the quintessential Robert Byrd style of home. And you're going to drool. It had wood paneling, stone exterior, a living room hayloft. Beam ceilings with exposed rafters. Oh, my gosh. How much would our boys have loved a living room hayloft? I think there'd be some broken arms. That's probably true. <laughs> yeah. A lot of jumping off of that. But that, I mean, that sounds gorgeous. I know. 
swoon-worthy. So in the 40s and 50s, the home changed hands many times and was often rented to high-profile tenants from the Baroness de Rothschild to silent film star Lillian Gesch. Rudolph Altabelli purchased the home in 1963 for $86,000, and he owned the home at the time of the massacre. Rudolph was a Hollywood talent scout whose clients included Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda. He, in turn, rented it out to clients and celebrity friends, including Cary Grant, who celebrated his honeymoon there in 1965. Wow, this is just like a star-studded list of people. A revolving door of star-studded people. Absolutely. I mean, crazy. A- absolutely crazy. It, 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 besides that, a ton of Hollywood elites have lived in the home, including Candace Bergen, her boyfriend, music producer Terry Melcher, who we'll talk about a little bit more later, and Trent Reznor, who recorded wow. an album there. Wow. Yeah, it's been wild. And were those all before the crime or a little bit before and after? A little bit before and after. Okay. Yep. So I feel like we need to put a timeline of everybody who's lived Ooh, in this home up on that. the website. Yes. Yeah, we'll do that. Okay. I like that. So we talked about the home. Let's talk a little bit about uh, who the victims are in this case. So first, we have popular actress and model Sharon Tate. Mm. She was eight and a half months pregnant at the oh, time wow. of her murder. She was actually born in Dallas. I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't either. Yeah. So that's that's kind of cool. And she was Miss Tiny Tot in Dallas when oh. she was a baby. Another beauty pageant tie-in. Yeah. What is it? What is it with that? And neither of us, neither of us are beauty pageant queens. I know. Well, you know, maybe in our third episode we will get away from yeah. the beauty pageant winner. Let's do that. Let's do that. Um Tate was already pretty well known in Hollywood and beyond. She was in Valley of the Dolls, which I from what I gather, I've not seen it, but from what I gather, it's kind of a it's a cult classic. And uh, was a very popular movie in the 60s. And I bet Melanie's son has or has not watched that. Seems like something that'd be right up his alley. I'm going to have to ask him when I get home. I'm not sure it's part of his genre, but, you know, he watches a lot of random old movies. He's such a movie buff. He totally is. He took a camp this summer, right, in Los Angeles, movie Uh, camp. Oh, yeah. He's already (laughs) planning his next one. Um, I'm constantly being told that my... um, Tastes are pedestrian. Not <laughs> um, your 14-year-old? Oh, two thumbs oh yes, down. yes. Yes. He had an argument the other day about how, you know, plot really isn't as important. It's about the cinematography and about the character development. Oh, my and, gosh. Yeah. I mean, he, he knows amazing amount. He's making movies. At, he, he takes a film class at school. I love it. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely. Oh, the other day he also told me that my um, taste was as a forty-something uh, wine mom. What? Yes. So is that, that like calling you a Karen or something? I, I, I mean, a little bit different. I, I but kind of like you know, basically someone who drinks too much wine. And I'll have you know, we watch a ton of indies. I would say that like my tastes are, you know, he gets like Hollywood Reporter subscription oh and Variety magazine. I, mean, <laughs> I love. I, 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 it, it, it's overblown in our household. It's all movies all the time. But I mean, it's fun for me. I watch a lot of movies. Yeah. yeah. Well, now, I have not seen Valley of the Dolls, but I mean, if you haven't seen it, maybe we need like a sleepover or something. So I would love that. Taking it back to the 80s. Yeah, let's be do fun. it. I think there's going to be a lot of 80s themes in, in, in this. You were mentioning Candace Bergen. Yes. And uh, I remember watching Murphy Brown in the late 80s uh, with her. Uh, I, I moved to America. Um, I had grown up overseas, and so I moved in like 84 to America. And so it took me a couple of years to kind of understand right. uh television. Um, That's highbrow. Murphy uh, Brown. I feel like that was a highbrow. I loved Murphy Brown. Oh, I, I did. 
I did not watch. I was like Mama's Family and Hee Haw. I didn't watch. <laughs> And Helter Skelter. <laughs> and, and true crime uh, Helter Skelter. Yes. Oh I do remember the after school TV shows like uh, what the. Uh, I watched a lot of Saved by the Bell. Oh, yeah. That was 90s. What, well, I mean, but it, I was still in school. Okay, yes, but that was like a whole <laughs> like 10 years later. Yeah, I don't remember a lot of 80s. After, what did you watch in the 80s after school? Uh, like, no, they had those, like, those after school. Oh, yeah. Like you know, the special? Stranger yes, Danger. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, about not smoking and teen pregnancy. And I think I watched some of those types of uh, shows. Yeah. Um, can I just have a side tangent here? Please. So we have Please started continue. watching um, Will Trent or William Trent. I don't know if it's on Hulu. I think it's Hulu. And it's dropping every week, so you can't binge watch it. But it has Mark Paul Gossler. Oh, Zach. Is he still Morris. so handsome? I mean, let's just say he's aged real well. Oh. <laughs> do. All men. So annoying. It's so annoying. Okay. Sorry. I just had to yeah. throw that. I'm sure my husband will appreciate that comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back to this, Sharon Tate was married to famed film producer Roman Polanski at the time of the massacre. But he was in Europe um, the night that this happened. So uh, he was not there. Um, in addition to Sharon Tate, we have celebrity stylist Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, who's heir to the Folger Coffee Empire, caretaker William Gerritsen, and his friend Stephen Parent. There was another victim whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce. There's a lot of letters in there. And um, we'll just put his name in the show notes because that's, I, yeah, yeah, that's, do that. I don't even want to try to mispronounce. I'm sort of envisioning like Entourage, you right. know, where he comes out to Hollywood and he has his stylist and his buddy and his, yes. like, they were probably just all They're hanging all out hanging in her out. house that night. Right. Absolutely. He, he was out of town and she was there and she's pregnant. That's that's what I imagine as well. Just kind of all hanging out. Um, interesting fact, Quincy Jones was supposed to be at the home that night with his friend Jay Sebring, but he was obviously not um, present at the home, but that's wild to think about. Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, because a lot of these people, I mean, this happened, you know, before we were born. Mm-hmm. So we didn't really have a connection to these actors and actresses. But I mean, Quincy Jones. Right. Wow. Right. I mean, his influence is everywhere in Hollywood and the music industry. And just to think about the people who never would have been mm-hmm. had he, you know, been there that night. It's kind of wild to think about. So the perpetrators of the crime, they're collectively known as the family, but specifically they were Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel. Um, They were the only ones present there at the time, but we all think about Charles Manson when we think about this murder. He was not there at the time of the murder, but he was the mastermind and leader um, to these crimes being being perpetrated. Oh, see, I don't think I knew that. I just always assumed, because you hear Manson Mm -hmm. murders— that, you know, he was like the ringleader, not only in spirit, but in person, that Absolutely. he would have been there too. Right. Yeah. And that's that's crazy. And, and he was one of the first people who was charged in a crime of this magnitude that he was not even present. He wasn't there. He never killed anybody, never, you know, had anything. He wasn't even close to the, to the crime scene at the time. So that's kind of wild to think about. He spent the rest of his life in prison for this crime that he was not even present for. Wow. For all intents and purposes, the family, it was a cult, and Charles Manson was their leader. Uh, Manson and his followers in 1968 were living on a commune and studying eccentric religious tenets that dabble in science fiction, the occult, French psychology. And he also preached about an impending race war that would decimate the United States. And he preached to his followers that 
because this would happen, he and the family would then become the leaders of the United States, that the United States would need guidance. And it was only them who could help guide the United States out of this, uh, whatever happened after this race war. Wow, that's crazy. Very crazy. I, I always wonder, like, what kind of number one people who would follow a cult leader, but what kind of person becomes a cult leader? Like, it's crazy to think about. Yeah, I would be, you know, my background's in psychology. I would love to to dig into that in my free time. Like, you know, right. I haven't I haven't studied a lot of that, but I actually, and oh shoot, I'm not going to know the name of the podcast, so we'll drop that in the show notes too, but I heard an advertisement for a new podcast this week that sounded so fascinating. It's these two girls who sound like they're probably in their early 30s, and they were both in a cult and are no longer in a cult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sort of the pitch of their podcast was, if it can happen to us, it can happen to anybody. And we're going to tell you how, you know, we sort of went mm-hmm. down that path. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I'll find, you know, I'll find out what the name of that podcast is because that sounded really fascinating to me. Oh, absolutely. And I, I don't know about these people specifically, but when I've researched just a touch on, you know, cults and stuff, it's um, it's usually people, well, I wouldn't say usually, it's sometimes people who do come from really strong family backgrounds. Like they have a, you know, what you would say would be a traditional household and they just for whatever reason, fell in with these very charismatic people and, you know, in this instance, killed several people. Yeah. Have you all watched Wild Wild Country? No. Oh, yes. It was a Netflix Netflix special, maybe, um, about cults. And uh, the cool thing was, and gosh, I'm going to say this is probably late 70s, they filmed themselves all the time. So there's this documentary series and you have the actual footage from the 70s in the commune. So a lot of nakedness. A lot of nakedness, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, you know, 60s and 70s. <laughs> Leading up to the event, the family went on a series of what Manson called creepy crawls, where they walked through affluent neighborhoods. Manson selected the home because of Terry Melcher, who was a big music producer at the time, and at Manson had aspirations of being a musician. Um, and Manson blamed Melcher for his failure to make it as a musician. Apparently, Manson knew that Melcher no longer lived there, but he chose the home because the home did symbolize that failure of his dream to make it in the music industry. Oh, that's so tragic. So it wasn't even about the people that lived in the house. Right. It was somebody that lived there before. That's horrifying. It really is. Just, yeah, absolutely. Um, I also thought it was interesting that the crime is officially labeled as what killed the summer of love. So, you know, 1969, and that that's what ended it. I, it was all peace and love until this. Right. And then it was horribly tragic. Exactly. Oh, exactly. My so Manson instructed them to enter the home and, quote, totally destroy everyone and, quote, do it as gruesomely as possible. So on mm. the late night, early morning of August 8th and 9th, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian drove from Spawn Ranch, where the family was then staying, to 10050 Cielo Drive. Upon entering the property, they saw headlights, prompting Tex to tell Atkins, Cranwinkle, and Kasabian to hide in the bushes. Stephen Parent, who was only 18, was their first victim. He was attempting to pull out of the driveway when Watson lunged at him, stabbed him, and shot him four times in the chest and abdomen. He died in the front seat of his 1965 AMC Ambassador. Oh, my goodness. Also, talk about, like, close calls. People that were almost there or who had almost left. Oh, right. That's awful. Right, yeah, and he was trying to leave. So sad. Mental note, if somebody, like, waves your car down, don't stop. I think Keep that's going. just a good rule of thumb yeah, unless I like it. you know them. Right, right. 
And even then, maybe not. <laughs> Next, Watson told Kasabian to stand watch outside while he, Atkins, and Krenwinkle entered the home. They first encountered Frykowski. And at the start of this episode, I could not pronounce the first name. So that name I couldn't pronounce. It, his last name is Frykowski. So that's how I refer to him um, from now on. But he was asleep on the living room couch. When they asked him, when Frykowski asked what they were doing there, Watson replied, I am the devil and I am here to do the devil's work. That is so creepy. <laughs> so creepy. I can't imagine. Nuts. So Atkins and Krenwinkle rounded up the other three victims in the living room, and Watson tied Tate and Sebring together by their necks. He slung the other end of the rope around the ceiling beams. Sebring was then shot and stabbed after he protested the rough treatment of his pregnant friend, Sharon Tate. During this time, Frykowski, who had had his hands bound, was able to free himself. He fought with Atkins, who stabbed him, for he was able to struggle his way to the front porch, where Watson caught him, struck, and stabbed him before shooting him twice. Frykowski suffered 51 stab wounds and had been struck in the head with the butt of Watson's gun 13 times, so intensely that when the gun was found at the scene, the barrel was bent and the gun grip was broken off. It was reported that during the commotion, Kasabian, who was still outside standing guard, became overwhelmed with the horrifying things that she was hearing inside that she found Atkins and falsely told her that someone was approaching the home in hopes of stopping the murders. Inside, there was a struggle ensuing between Krenwinkle and Folger when Abigail Folger was able to escape through her bedroom window out to the pool area. Unfortunately, Krenwinkle caught and tackled her. Watson helped Krenwinkle stab her a total of 28 times, killing her. Tate, the last alive, witnessing everything that was occurring around her, pleaded for the life of her unborn child. She begged the assailants to let her live long enough to give birth to her child, even offering herself up as a hostage. In the end, Atkins held her down as Watson stabbed her 16 times, killing her. As a final insult on Manson's instructions to, quote, leave a sign and do something witchy, end quote, Atkins wrote the word pig in Tate's blood on the front door. Wow. That's a lot to take in. I, I know. know. It's very intense. And I mean, I keep using this word, but it's absolutely horrifying. It, it is. You're absolutely right. And I just, I mean, to think about what they were all going through, trying to get away. I mean, really in terms of numbers, it seemed pretty equally matched, but they mm -hmm. were just, you know, taken totally by surprise. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you might remember at the top of the episode, I mentioned William Gerritsen. He's a caretaker of the property. It was Gerritsen that Stephen Parent, the first victim, was at the home to see that night. Miraculously, Gerritsen didn't hear or witness anything. He was in a guest house. His life was spared that night, but he was briefly a suspect and was arrested, but was quickly released. Yeah. I mean, I can see why they would think maybe uh, yeah. he was the initial first suspect, <laughs> right. the only person not to be right. killed on yeah. the property. I can't believe he didn't see or hear anything. I mean, I think that's weird, too. It, I saw one on one website that I was researching that he was listening to music really loud and just didn't. Well, that makes sense for the time. Right. Yeah. So, it, and it and, and again, again, the word horrifying that Stephen Parent was, he was leaving the home. He was the first victim leaving the home. He was there to visit William Garrison. He was spared. He was leaving and that happened to him. It's terrible. In October of 1969, police raided the compound that Manson and his followers were staying at. 24 members of the family were arrested, including Manson and Atkins, on arson and grand theft charges. On November 6th, Atkins shared the story of killing Tate and her friends, with a fellow inmate. She expressed no remorse as she recounted Tate's pleas of, and of tasting Tate's blood. That inmate told another and word quickly made its way to the LAPD. So how long after the murders did this occur? So um, in October of 1969, the murders were August 
1969, early August. Okay, so a couple months. Right, yeah. And then November 6th is when she was, you know, spilling everything, bragging. Okay, so I just want to stop for a second. Now, when when they raided the compound, um, was it because of this, uh, the Sharon Tate murders? I mean, I I know that the Manson family was doing a whole variety of other crimes Mm -hmm, that we're not mm -hmm. really kind of going into today. They didn't connect it at all. Oh. At all. This was completely unrelated. And had she not said anything, who knows how long it would have been before they were able to pinpoint them. Wow. Yeah. The DA's office knew that they needed testimony from at least one person who was present at the murders and first reached a deal with the attorney representing Atkins. Atkins would recount the murders in exchange the prosecutors would not seek the death penalty. Atkins testified before the grand jury, emotionless, remorseless, and Manson, Watson, Krenwinkel, Atkins, and Kasabian were quickly indicted by a grand jury on murder charges. Unfortunately, Tex Watson was not able to be extradited from Texas to California, so the prosecution made the decision to proceed without him. Okay, so Tex, after this time, had gone to right. Texas. Right, he wasn't part of the raid, had gone back to Texas, and it's something about some politics, and they were able to to extradite him in time for the trial. There's so many layers to this I know. in the end. Right. Now, and just remind me, Caspian, and she, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I started with these names. Now, had she actually done any of the stabbing? She hadn't. She was okay. the one who was standing guard and was trying to heard the sounds and at one point tried to stop what was happening, but the wheels were already off. That was that was definitely going down. But no, she did not actively participate. And in fact, she the only reason she was there, she's the only one who had a driver's license at the time of the murder. So she drove them to the Cielo Drive. It makes me feel like a mom a little bit in terms of, you know, you are who you associate with. Exactly. Yes. A hundred percent. It's so weird, too. As I was researching, a lot of these women that came from what you would think would be an ideal family. I think one of them, her father was an aeronautical uh, engineer. I don't, I don't think that's the right yeah, aerospace, uh, aerospace, yeah, something yeah. like that. Just and, and you know nu- what we call nuclear families. They had the, both the mother and the father in the home, and it's just just weird that these were the girls that ended up falling into this cult. It was a cult. Well, you know, since my knowledge of this whole era is from Once Upon a Time of Hollywood, which you know <laughs> it was such a documentary. <laughs> no, um, but. In the movie, and I don't know if this is true or not, it does seem to be like 80% good-looking young women um, that are that are in this group that are kind of hanging out, uh, laying around with each other all mm-hmm, the time. Mm-hmm. But you do sort of get this sensation that they may come from at least middle-class backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of stuff coming out in the media news now about cults and how they really do draw people in that you would not think they would right. be able to draw in. So, you know, they didn't have that kind of psychology or, or you know, analy- analyzation. Um, they weren't able to analyze it like that back then. But it's definitely interesting that cults can pull in people that you just mm-hmm. don't think would be influenced by a cult mm-hmm. leader. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. Jury selection began on June 15, 1970, and a jury of five men and seven women were selected and told that they were going to be sequestered during the trial. Opening statements began on July 24th, and it became pretty clear from day one that this trial was going to be a circus. Manson entered the courtroom with a freshly cut, bloody X carved into his forehead. He said in a statement that he did this to signify that he has, quote, X'd myself from your world. Obviously quite sane. 
<laughs> yes, 100%. Yeah. The star witness in the trial was not Susan Atkins, but Linda Kasabian, who prosecutors had to lean on when Atkins refused to testify. Kasabian was offered immunity in exchange for her testimony. Kasabian was called to the stand on July 27th and would remain for 17 days, including seven days of cross-examination. Kasabian testified that no family member would deny an order from Manson because they all wanted to, to do, quote, anything and everything for him. Her testimony was stalled on August 3rd when Manson stood up inside of the jury and held up a copy of the Los Angeles Times that had the headline, Manson Guilty, Nixon Declares. Immediately, the defense called for a mistrial on the grounds that the jury was now prejudiced, but the judge denied the motion after receiving sworn statements from the jury that they would not be influenced by the president's declaration. Okay, wait. So the president has decided he's guilty? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think this is not quite how our legal system works, but okay. Interesting right. side note. Right, yeah. Kasabian's testimony would be corroborated by the prisoner to whom Atkins confessed. Despite the defense's attempt to make Kasabian seem like a spaced-out, drugged-out hippie, she came across as very credible. On November 16, 1970, after 22 weeks of testimony, the prosecution rested its case. Three days later, the defense stunned the courtroom when they declared that the defense rested before calling a single witness. Upon this declaration, the three female defendants stood and began shouting that they wanted to testify. Attorneys for the women strongly opposed calling them to the stand because they knew they would confess to planning and committing the murders without Manson's help. Despite this, the judge ruled that the defendant's right to testify took precedence and they were called to the stand. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay. You mean from a legal standpoint, interesting? Yeah. And just from a, they were that devoted. That right. They were going to go up and, I mean, still after all this time, they're in prison. You know, they've had probably their attorneys and their families talking to them. And they are still so brainwashed mm -hmm. that they're going to go up there and say he had nothing to do with it. Right. And it's really interesting to me that they were all being tried together jointly in one trial. You would have thought that one of them would have broken from the rest of them. Um, Kasabian, for example. Well, I guess she would have had immunity. But yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like they would have broken those apart somehow. Yeah. And I'm not sure what the, what the story is on that. Like why they, it was tried that way. Maybe it was a, Sign of the Times type. I'm not really sure on why it occurred that way. The next day, Manson announced that he too would like to testify and he wanted to do it before his co-defendants did. The judge allowed him to testify without the jury present. He spoke for over an hour. And I read it. It's nutso, like legitimately rambling for an hour and he's crazy. Okay. Yeah. We should find the transcript and maybe put it on our website okay. in case anybody wants to read it. Yeah. After a statement when asked if he would like to speak before the jury, Manson declined and as he took his seat, passed by the women and said, you don't have to testify now. Weird. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's I, not funny. This I is horrible. I too. But yeah. Like, he's like, I got it, ladies. Right. <laughs> right. There are a few more interesting things that happened during the course of the trial, but I'll wrap up my synopsis by mentioning that the jurors deliberated for a week before finding all the defendants guilty of first-degree murder on January 25th, 1971. On March 29th, the jury completed its work and sentenced the defendants to death. Upon hearing the sentence, Manson shouted, quote, you people have no authority over me. Patricia Krenwinkel said, quote, you have judged yourselves. And Susan Atkins chillingly yelled, quote, lock your doors and watch your own kids. After over nine months, the trial had been the longest and most expensive in U.S. history. Also, that jury had been sequestered for 225 days, longer than any other jury in history. Oh, my gosh. That's insane. That's crazy. I mean, that's a better part of a year. I mean, that seems crazy to me, considering the fact that it, I mean, 
was it ever in doubt? <laughs> I mean, like, right. I right. mean n- maybe if Manson had influenced it, maybe that was in doubt, but it definitely seemed like it, it, there wasn't, they weren't trying to point it at someone else. Seems like a long time for something that pretty much everyone mm-hmm. knew at the beginning of mm-hmm. the trial what was going to happen. Right. Have you all ever served on a jury? No. No. I totally want to. <laughs> You do? Oh, yes. I'm obsessed now. Well, after the last couple of weeks of watching a lot of court TV, I definitely You're really ready. want to. Oh, For yeah. Your jury service. Have oh, you? Yeah. I've not. I mean, I've been called and gotten really close a couple of times, um, but my husband has like two or three times. I mean, but wow. he's a lawyer. Is that- I know. And I would have. You would think that they would just totally kick him out of the jury pool on their one yeah. year, but no, he, he always gets called when he goes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. My mom served as a foreman of a jury once. Oh. And I think it was like a week or so a jury. So it's a fairly big enough one. And I I think she secretly loved it. <laughs> I mean, it really is a huge service, though. If you think of 255 days or two, 225 days, excuse me, um, they had to put their lives on hold, essentially. They weren't mm-hmm. going to work. Yeah. And by picking sc- up their kids from school, I mean... Yeah, that's mm-hmm. crazy. It sounds terrible, but kind of not. <laughs> I mean, <it's> not. <laughs> Don't Sorry, contact me. Sorry, yeah. I have jury duty. <laughs> the sentences handed down by the jury would never be imposed because in 1972, the California Supreme Court ruled that the state's death penalty law was unconstitutional. All of the sentences, including Tex Watson, who had finally been extradited, convicted, and also sentenced to death, had been commuted to life in prison. Watson, 76, Krenwinkel, 74, are still serving out their sentences. Atkins died in prison from brain cancer in 2009 at the age of 61, and Manson died in prison of natural causes at the age of 83. Wow. Yeah. So two of the four or five are still in prison. Correct. Wow. Yes. And what happened to um, Kasabian? Yes. Nothing. She went on with her life and... I, there's very little written about her. She's done some interviews, but she's been like blacked out and voice changed and everything. So I'm guessing her name has changed too. I'm certain. <laughs> I'm certain her name has changed. I thought it was interesting that when Atkins died, she had been the longest serving female prisoner in California. And now that goes to Krenwinkel, who oh, is now wow. still surviving, right, who's still living in prison. Are you ready to hear what happened with the property? Yeah, this has been really heavy. Let's get back to the house. Okay, sounds good. Well, it should come as no surprise that the vicious murders didn't pack the resale of the home. You will remember that Richard Altabelli owned the home when the crime happened. Unfortunately, instead of embracing and comforting Roman Polanski, husband of Sharon Tate, he sued him. Altabelli sued Polanski for $198,000 in addition to suing Time Magazine for $650,000. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so just... Just like, let's restate that one more time. Like the landlord, mm-hmm. uh, the owner of the home mm-hmm. that had rented it out to Roman Polanski sued Roman Polanski, even Cor- though we know that Roman Polanski wasn't even really like, you know, the um, victim, like in the sense of they didn't target, they weren't targeting right. him. They were targeting the house. Exactly. Exactly. It does get worse. But let me say this. It, it sounds bad. This already sounds bad. Um, but Roman Polanski did do a photo shoot and article for Time magazine. Altabelli claims he had no knowledge of this happening. Um, so that would, you know, affect the resale of the home. I kind of get that when I when I think about if that were true, if he actually had no, you know, if he did not know that this was happening. I, I kind of get that. This is the part I don't get. He sued 
Sharon Tate's estate. He sued them for $480,000 for damages incurred to the property during the course of the murders and for, quote, embarrassment, humiliation, emotional, and mental distress. That's the part I don't get. That's horrible. Yes. And I mean, from a legal standpoint, I'm not a lawyer, but as somebody that drafts like leases and contracts Mm -hmm. pretty often, I would think that like your security deposit is all you're going to get back. I mean, you're sort of taking a gamble on any tenant. Right. Right. You would think so. It's not their fault that somebody came in and murdered a whole house full of people there. I can't even imagine. That's horrible. Right. And and I don't have the exact amount. I should have jotted this down, but I I did not. Um, The jury largely sided with the estate and awarded him a smaller amount, $4,000 plus. Okay. Well, that makes me feel like a little bit right right with the world. Right. When Altabelli couldn't find tenants to occupy the property, he moved in and remained there for 20 years, all the while trying the whole time to unload it on a buyer. And I'm not surprised that he couldn't find a tenant. Aside from the horrifying events that happened, he sued the estate again. He sued the estate of Sharon Tate for damages incurred during the murder of Sharon Tate. Well, and that just keeps it in the news cycle, too. Right. I mean, if you're trying to make people forget that this happened mm-hmm. to this house, don't keep bringing lawsuits. Right, right. Let's fast forward to September 1988. The home hits the market for $1.99 million and was sold to John Prell for $1.6 million. That's 18 times what Altabelli paid for it back in 1960. Okay. Yeah. Prell owned the home for two years before selling it to Alvin Weintraub for $2.2 million. It was Weintraub who rented the home to Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails for $11,000 a month. During the time there, Nine Inch Nails recorded their second album, The Downward Spiral, and also filmed a music video there. Trent has said that the effects of the home were still palpable when he stayed there some 20 plus years after the event. He described the feeling of the home as sad rather than scary. He also recalled that during his time there, people would leave dead roses and lit candles at the front gate, and he wondered if they were leaving them for Manson or Tate. Yikes. Yeah, creepy. Trent Reznor has stated in interviews that when Sharon Tate's sister, Deborah Tate, visited him at the home and asked him if he was exploiting his sister's death, that he reevaluated his interest in the home and the crime. He described the confrontation as a slap in the face and that he would never again wanted to be associated with or thought to be supportive of Manson. Trent moved out of the home, but took the front door of the home, later hanging on the wall of his New Orleans recording studio. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I kind of get that. Like, I get... I mean, it's a piece of history, a piece of American history, and it's horrible and creepy, but I kind of get that. Except it wasn't really his to take, so. <laughs> well, true, <laughs> but Weintraub demolished it as soon as Trent left. Oh, uh, yes. and he probably knew he that probably was the plan. Yes, okay. He probably did, yes. He probably did. You're like, but he stole it. <laughs> right. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's cool. <laughs> if you like theft. So did Trent Reznor, I'm guessing that he knew from the get-go that he had rented this house to do the recording because there had been murders in there. I thought the same thing, but I found an article online that stated that he did not realize when he rented it. And it was only when, I guess he had some knowledge of the crime because he noticed that it looked similar to some photos that he had seen. And then as it turns out, they were able to research it and found out that that was, I don't, that sounds far-fetched to me. I don't know if that's accurate or not. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, if he didn't and it was completely coincidental, then yeah, that's more weird. power to him. I mean, it is weird, but I could see it. I mean, you know, Nine Inch Nails kind of not morbid, a little bit, um, a lot. You know, though, so I think it's so interesting, the amount of music history mm-hmm. and cinema history in this home. Do you think most L.A. homes are like that? Do they have this like revolving door of stars or is this unique to this property, do you think? 
I mean, I would say, I shouldn't act like I'm an expert, but the Hollywood Hills were a famous epicenter for that, for this. And, you know, these were more expensive, large homes. So it was probably going to be going to people who had money, which being in Hollywood has somebody to do with the movie industry. And it's an older home so that it, it kind of spanned all the different eras. So I think, you know, we're kind of looking at a small area that it probably, if it was going to be involved in, it probably would be in this neighborhood, in this area. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. Definitely, uh, I, I mean, people go out to LA and you think that there's like, you know, movie stars every which way and then you're disappointed and it's like, you know, everyone like you and I, you're normal right. people. Because they're all living in the Hollywood Hills yeah. <laughs> in their own little area. But that said, I mean, you know, I don't seem to run into them, but my sister seems to run into celebrities all the time. But, you know, she runs into them like, you know, at the restaurant or the gas station or at the gym, like, you know, like average places. But, you know, where she lives happens to be close to all that, too. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's that stereotype of us, you know, you know, living in the heartland, Texas, middle America, that in L.A. there are a dime a dozen and you know, honestly, I could probably walk by most of them. And if I saw them in a movie, I would know who they were. But if, you know, with a ball cap on and walking down the street, I probably wouldn't recognize most of them. Okay. So Trent Reznor moves out of this house. He takes the door. Takes the door. <laughs> because they're going to demolish it. Yes. You're really into this door. Yes. I am. I'm, the doors. <laughs> all right. Yes. Uh, so Weintraub did try to sell the home. Uh, he put it on the market for $4.95 million, couldn't unload it, so bulldozed the home. The home is rebuilt and has a new address. It's now 10066 Cielo Drive. At this time, it's an 18,000-square-foot Mediterranean home. It has nine bedrooms and 13 bathrooms, and it's a far cry from Robert Byrd's charming farmhouse that he originally built. By Weintraub's admission, down to the dirt on the ground, there is no connection to Sharon Tate and the original home. Despite this, the home that was originally listed for $12 million dropped to $7.7 million, finally sold in 2000 to Jeff Franklin for $6,375,000. Does that name sound familiar? No, it doesn't sound familiar to me. Melanie? No? Okay, I, whenever I see his name, I still see it in that yellow font from Full House. He created Full oh, House. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So um, he fell in love with the home. He loved the privacy and the views of the home. He did his own remodeling. And when he was done, it was a 21,000 square foot mammoth. It had a 16 car garage, underground garage, nine bedrooms, 18 bathrooms, six bars, five aquariums, a 20 foot shark tank, an Elvis museum, a 75 foot tropical themed pool with three waterfalls, two hot tubs, 35 foot slide, a sweat bar, private grotto, Koi Pond and Lazy River. And those are just a sampling of the amenities that the home featured after his remodel. I feel like you need to take a breath after all those things you just listed. I mean, that's that's a ridiculous. And I kind of wonder, like, what's, do, do you guys remember, like, that Pimp My House? Oh, yeah. Was it Pimp My House? I know there was Pimp My Ride, but wasn't there? Something. There was, like, some MTV-esque shows in the 90s, maybe dating myself, that were, like, Going behind these people's like crazy yes. ass house. Something about your crib. Oh yes. Oh, yeah. MTV yep. cribs. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I should. I should have looked that up. But yeah. I mean, like <laughs> this seems like ridiculous. Right. Well, like, I, so I started cheesy. to pause when you said five aquariums, and then you got to Elvis Museum, and I was like, well, I'm just going to sit back and listen to what else <laughs> there is here. I mean, who doesn't have their own Elvis Museum in their home? I mean, seriously. I have a picture of Elvis. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, we're going to call that your museum from now on. I've been Ellis Wall. <laughs> but I did want to stop for a second. Okay. So this is the second story in a row where they changed the address of the house. Yeah. I thought the same thing. How does... How does that go about? I mean, I would assume it was legally. It's like, can a lawyer petition? Can I decide that I want a different address? It's like a zoning thing. So like- I've I've not had a client do it, but I have seen it done in our neighborhood before where a house was on a corner of a busy street and a not so busy street. And the address was the busy street address. And I think there is some sort of just, you know, request of the city to change it. And as long as it meets their zoning guidelines or, you know, uh, so. Yeah. And and I can see how if you lived on a busy street or if your address was a busy street, but your house wasn't really on right. that section, that it would be better for you from a, you know, a marketing perspective to have another address because you could see people just looking at that and going like, oh, I don't want to live on that street. Right. Right. Yeah. No. For sure. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And I also wonder this being in LA, not to go down another rabbit hole, is but they have all those like maps of the stars houses. I wonder if there was like maps of famous oh, yeah. crimes or famous events, more kind of like you know, Hollywood memorabilia and that people would be driving by the house. I mean, maybe that's why, it, you know, it was kind of tour buses trying to come down the street. I don't know if it's a private drive. Yeah, I saw it. So it's a gated community, but then I saw that there is a tour bus even to this day that still tours the that land. And the house is not there. It's unrecognizable. Um, but they still go down that street and tour the land and talk about it. So yeah, that's totally a thing. Okay. Well, so that Google too, right? Because oh, well, if you yeah, know now. the address of a property and you Google it, I mm-hmm. mean, just changing that would be right. sort of like Krenkowski or whatever her name was, changing her name. Was that? Oh, Kasabian. Kasabian. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes. One of the case. It was, yeah. Yeah, but was the other one. Okay. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> so this summer when I'm out in L.A., I will definitely have to try when and drive. When we're out in L.A. Oh, yeah. See, <laughs> you guys are invited. We'll, we'll have to go do a, a, a drive-by yeah, and right. uh, take take a picture. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. If you, did y'all see that Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special? Mm-hmm. Uh, not. Oh, okay. Well. It's really fun. It was really good. And they it's all about Kevin Bacon. So for, you know, the 80s, 90s kind of fans in us, you would like it. And so they decide to give Kevin Bacon as a Christmas gift. And so they come down to Earth and then they go and buy a, a map of the stars. And oh, then they and it has Kevin Bacon's house on it. And I was like, okay, you know. Did they really have that? But then I'm like, I think they do have, yeah, have some of the addresses and Okay, that was a big segue. Sorry. <laughs> but it was really kind of funny because it made me think about, wow, can you go find anybody? Right. You totally can. Can we talk, though, for a minute about the extreme opulence of what this guy built? I mean, he he started with 18,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. and I It can, wasn't enough. It, it wasn't enough. <laughs> I'm like, you didn't have room for your Elvis Museum as the extra 3,000 square feet? Is that what you've got there? And I, I'm just blown away. It doesn't away. make any sense. <laughs> like, why does one person need that? But did you think it was weird he only had two hot tubs? Like, you have five aquariums and a shark tank, but only two hot tubs? Yeah, that, that is weird. I mean, and you would think hot tubs are an easy splurge. I mean, you <laughs> yeah. could put one in each bedroom if you wanted at 18,000 square feet. <laughs> right, right. That's I think crazy. that when you're doing something that opulent and also so specific, you know, you're really getting yourself out of the marketplace Mm -hmm. because you see oftentimes on these Zillow or like different alerts come about about like, you know, some crazy huge house in 
somewhere random, like, I don't know, South Lake, Texas, and it has, and they're looking for a buyer and the price is being kind of cut down and cut down. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm sure you have a great view, but you have really cut yourself. You've become mm-hmm. niche, like right. real niche. And uh, it's not even that it's so expensive. It's just so weird. Mm-hmm. Melanie sounds like a real estate agent. She does. Well, and <laughs> we're going to get you there, Melanie. <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, but two, when you get into that price point and that size, People really want custom. Mm-hmm. And so you're not only looking for somebody that's willing to pay whatever you're asking for mm-hmm. this now 22,000 square foot house, but then you're also looking for somebody that can come in and afford to totally redo it mm-hmm. to the way they want it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's probably what's going on right now because Franklin listed the home in 2022, 22 years after purchasing it for $85 million. The home is still on the market, and despite Franklin saying that the 1969 events of the home are, quote, ancient history and that it has no impact on his life, it still remains on the market for now $70 million. Oh, so we'll give it like a little plug. If you were looking for a $70 million house <laughs> in the Hollywood Hills, this one's for sale. There you go. All right. We'll have to link to it on our social. <laughs> Y'all go check it out. Thank you all for letting me, indulging me and letting me talk about the Manson family. I really appreciate that. I like it. Yeah. It was your first story to tell. Yes. So this was good, Atlanta. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, and you know, because I start going down rabbit holes when you talk about the inks. I Googled Jeff Franklin and the very second thing that came up was Jeff Franklin House. Okay. <laughs> Love it. So we know in the 90s, the house was completely raised and a huge giant 18,000 square foot mansion was built on there. So would you guys live there? Would Would you list it, Heather? Would, would, what, would, what, what do y'all think? I would definitely list it. I yeah. mean, I think... It's a new house at this point. It's just the ground where things happened. And I think if you're going to, I mean, if we're going to get really into the details of what happened on the ground, you could go way mm-hmm. far back. Oh, right. You yeah. know, about you know, all sorts of history of the states. And mm-hmm. yeah, I just don't think you can go there. So I would list it. I would definitely, I think I would live there too. I mean, an 18,000 mm-hmm. square foot house is not my speed, but if the question is, would I live there after what had occurred and mm-hmm. what they had done to the house, then yeah, I would live there. Mm-hmm. I would totally list it, 100%. I would list it. And then the fact that it, the original home is not there, I would uh, definitely live there. But what if the original home were still there? Would you, same questions, what would you do? I don't know. I mean, it was such a violent, horrible, multi-person murder. I, I don't know that I could live there. Mm-hmm. Same. I don't know. I mean, it's like 50 years now, right? I think it was longer than that. Like, okay. So, yeah. Was it? I don't know. It's 69. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I feel like it's still 2000. That's how I base all the number of years. I'm like, oh, we'll just, you know, take it off of a thousand and we'll see. Okay. It's a long, it's like 50 years. Yeah, you're right. Um, And there's definitely been people who had lived there since then. Yeah. I mean, I think. You just, like nothing phases you. I guess not. <laughs> I mean, well, I wouldn't move into it right away. Right. Um, but yeah, I think I think so. It's easy to, to be hypothetical in this situation. Right. Right. Yeah. Heather, we're kicking it back to you next week. Want to tell us about it? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, up to this point, we've done two very notorious crimes. This coming episode is going to be something a little less notorious, a little less well-known, although 2020 did recently mm. do an episode on it, and we're going to find ourselves in the Upper West Side of New York. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, 
So we hope everybody will tune in next week. Is there a beauty queen? There's a beauty queen in this one, right? Oh, my gosh. I hope I have not found a beauty queen connection yet, but it seems to be a trend. Somewhere. Uh, but we promised everybody that there wouldn't be. So if there is, we'll just slip it into the show notes. <laughs> we, won't, we won't talk about it too much. All right. Looking forward to it. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured crime estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week. 